We are going to begin in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. We will be covering 2 Samuel 14. I want us to have a context that I think is going to be helpful. Now, before I got a, I got a little press release that I'm going to read to you. Um, we were going to begin in this passage in Genesis 3 before I even read this little press release. So this is from PETA. You guys know what PETA is? All right, here it is. In the beginning, so this is PETA, okay? Not Blake, not the Bible, PETA, okay? In the beginning, all animals were treated with respect, according to PETA, which has given the Bible's book of Genesis a modern makeover using chat GPT to send a can't-be-missed animal rights message filled with vegan teachings. PETA hopes the new cruelty-free story of creation will appeal to Generation Z, 73% of whom identify as animal rights activists. In the book, PETA's version of the creation story, animals are referred to as beings rather than beasts or creatures, and plant fibers like hemp and bamboo are used in place of animal skins for clothing as no one with any fashion or moral sense would wear animal skins in the 21st century. The Bible has long been used to justify all forms of oppression, so we used ChatGPT to make it clear that a loving God would never endorse exploitation of or cruelty to animals. What do you think? <laughs> There's a nice exasperation. Here's the major issue. Cell phone that I was just reading on was foreign technology to all of us just north of 15 years ago, and it's common in every single one of our pockets. When it comes to artificial intelligence, this technology, it's not going anywhere, and it's just going to be used more and more. So one, there's, with all technology, it's a tool that can be used for good or for evil. But as we sit in artificial intelligence, it's, it's super strange. I don't know if you've played with the chat GPT or others at all, but interesting. What's even more interesting is how the world is going to use such a tool to twist the Word of God. And here's the, here's the major issue, is that there's, there's nothing wrong. In fact, God gave humans dominion over the animals. We are not to exploit animals. We are not to be cruel to animals. If you want a vegan diet, have at it. There's a lot of, if you want to sit in the science and all those kinds of things of meats versus vegetables, what you eat does not commend you to God. The blood of Jesus Christ is what commends us to God. What PETA is doing with technology in attempting to make the word of more palatable to a specific generation that may have a animal rights activist mindset, what they're doing is that they're breaking the image of God. Like I said, before I even read that article, so that was released, the press release was May 3rd, so whatever day that was. Was that Friday? Thursday? Read that, so I knew that we were going to begin here in Genesis 3 in that particular passage because what we're going to read through in Genesis is going to feed into the conversation where we are in 2 Samuel but in verse 20 of Genesis 3, it says, Adam, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
Also for Adam, so this is Genesis 3.21, it says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. So specifically what Peter was doing with this technology is rewriting that verse because the creator of the heavens and the earth would never sacrifice an animal. So for God to clothe Adam and Eve, to cover them in skin, means that God introduced Adam and Eve to animal sacrifice. And the whole purpose of animal sacrifice is this image that our sin brings about death and causes a separation from God. It causes a banishment where we are driven out of his presence. The only way we come back into his presence is through a sacrifice. The Old Testament animal sacrifice, this imagery of blood, that life is in the blood, that when you lay your hands on an animal, your sin is being transferred to that animal, and that animal is dying for your sin. It was not animal cruelty. It was not to, to exploit an animal. It's the image and the reality that sin causes death. And if that is offensive to you, it should be offensive to you, and it should have been offensive to anybody participating in animal sacrifices, realizing and understanding my sin is causing that animal's death, how ought my behavior to change? And this imagery carries forward into Christ, where it's ultimately all of this is pointing to Jesus' death on the cross for us, that my sin, your sin, is placed on him, and as he is giving his body, as he is shedding his blood, having his life pour out of him, that was a substitutionary death on your behalf. And again, it's to motivate and to understand that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He created you and me to have his image. We don't have that image. And the only way that that image is reborn in us is through faith in Jesus Christ. So do you see how... Attempting to make the word of God palatable and comfortable breaks the image of God. And that is something that we are to never do. So here, God is clothing Adam and Eve in skin. And then it says that the Lord said, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to, to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out uh, the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Major emphasis and focus here. God is the one who is sending Adam and Eve out of his presence. He is banishing them from the presence of this tree of life, which we see all the way at the end in Revelation, that this tree of life is in God's eternal heaven and all of its imagery that it creates. But what I want us to focus on is this whole idea of banishment. So Adam and Eve, because of their sin, that sin causing a separation and breaking that relationship with God, God is now sending them out from his presence to till the ground. You got that? It's chapter 4. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, really quick, because Cain is a tiller of the ground, that doesn't mean he was less holy or less worthy than Abel. 
God said that I am sending Adam and Eve out of the garden to what? To go and till the ground, to be farmers. So when it says that in the process of time that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. The issue is it's the heart of worship. They're both coming to the Lord, presenting an offering according to what God has commanded them. The issue is the heart that it's being done in. So Cain's presentation of an offering of the fruit of the field, we see this later on in the law. It's not that God did not command that, but he has a heart issue. And the God knows our hearts. So God can receive our worship and accept our worship because it's through faith in his son as we sing out and as we pray and as we serve and all the different forms that worship take in our lives. Or our worship is something that God can reject. I'm not accepting that and receiving that because you're doing it for you. You're not doing it for the relationship. So Cain wasn't doing it in relationship with God. Cain's just going through the process of the rules. And because God does not respect his offering, Cain is welled up with anger and his countenance, his face falls. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted and lifted up? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. It's resting at an open door, and its desire is for you. But you, Cain, you should rule over the sin that is seeking to rule over you. Does he listen to God? Unfortunately, no. Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guard? And God says to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you, the consequence of Cain's sin. A fugitive and a vagabond, uh, this is the wander aimlessly, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment, my sin, my iniquity, and the consequence, it's greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day, not just from the presence of God, but says from the face of the ground. And Cain making this declaration, I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. What do you think of God's mercy to Cain? It's, it's powerful. Did Cain deserve to keep on living? He's, Cain is not repentant. Cain's blaming all of his issues on God. 
and his punishment, God's definition of his sin. This is your fault. This is your definition. I'm not able to bear the punishment that you are going to bring about in my life. Not only are you driving me out from your presence and from uh, the, the face of the ground, because again, the, the, the direct inference is as he shed his brother's blood, the blood is being poured out on the ground. The ground is offended, so it's no longer going to produce its fruit for the one who shed the blood, Cain. And Cain is, I am going to hide from your face. I am going to hide from your presence. And he runs away from God. So I want you to have this picture of Adam and Eve and their sin, God's clothing of them, giving to them the instructions in regards to sacrifice, both animal sacrifice and the offering of the fruit of the field, and to have this image of brothers that one of them is having contention against the other. So Cain killing Abel and the consequences of that in Cain's life. Now turn to 2 Samuel 14, because where we are in 2 Samuel, we watched last week in chapter 13, Amnon is the crown prince. He is the eldest, firstborn son of David, the eldest brother. He violently rapes his half-sister, Tamar, which is a full sister of Absalom. We don't see David do anything other than be angry. And Absalom takes it upon himself to enact judgment upon the elder brother, Amnon. So you have one brother, Absalom, killing another brother, Amnon. You have all that in the emotion? So in that scene, we are told that when uh, Absalom's having a feast because it's sheep shearing time, that he's invited all the king's sons, that Amnon is struck down by Absalom's servants. David is fearing. He hears the news, and he thinks that all of his sons are dead. But then he gets the news that only Amnon has died, but Absalom has fled to his grandpa in Geshur. He's the king of Geshur, which is on it's the Golan Heights. So south side of the Golan Heights, east of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is where Absalom has fled to. A note to press into, Absalom, we are told, is gone for three years. So for three years, the fourth-born son, Adonijah, thinks that he is now in line to be king. That becomes important when you get into 1 Kings, because then Absalom is trying to seize the throne before David dies, but then Solomon is appointed as king. But when you sit in 1 Kings, Adonijah's heart is already being stirred up at this time. I bring up this three-year period of time and the political dynamics because we need to sit in your imagination a little bit. And if you were David, or if you were David's counselor, what would your perspective be over these three years? You were mourning the death of the crown prince, so that has an effect personally in David's life as a father in regards to his firstborn son. It has political implications for David. It has political implications for the nation of Israel as a whole. We know nothing about David walking alongside of Tamar and her tragedy that she endured. And then David is also at the same time sitting in his son who has banished himself. So Absalom, through committing murder, he knows that what he did was illegal. It was not justice, and he is fleeing from the law. 
But Absalom is sitting just like Cain sat in his personal justification of the reasons why he did what he did. Absalom is sitting in his personal justifications. As we move forward in the story with David and Absalom, Absalom never repents. We're going to see a restoration of the relationship between father and son to a degree today at the very end. But it's not a repentant, reconciled relationship. But we're sitting in this idea of Absalom is the banished son, and he's banished because of the acts of his own hands. And Joab is sitting in this with David. Joab is the general of the time. We don't have any reason, we don't, uh, we don't know the reason why Joab is acting as an intercessor on behalf of David and Absalom in this chapter. We don't know if it's only to serve David. We don't know if it's because of what's going on politically and culturally. All we have is this story now that Joab, so chapter 14, verse 1 says, Joab, the son of Zariah, which remember that's uh, David's sister. So Joab is David's nephew. He perceived that the king's heart was concerned that David's mind is on Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time from the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put words in her mouth. So again, in this, it's not that Joab is attempting to be devious. He's going to use a, a wise woman and has put a scenario into her mouth to go before David in legal fiction. So she's going to present a case to David to essentially entrap David in judgment to make David realize an understanding the judgment that he's going to offer to this woman he needs to listen to his own judgment in regards to what he ought to be communicating towards Absalom. So again, Joab's intention is not to lie to the king. Joab's intention is to wake the king up and to grab his attention. For whatever reason, for three years, David is not doing anything. And Joab, I think, knows that, sees that, and understands that, and wants to help the king do something rather than sit there in inaction. Now, in knowing and understanding David's heart, my personal opinion is that David's inaction is that God is not speaking to him. I have no doubt that, God, that David is seeking God in prayer. I have no doubt that he's, he's seeking God as he's mourning for his son, as he's mourning for his daughter, as he's mourning for Absalom. I have no doubt that as David is finding this conflict of interest as king and father and all the different issues that this is having within his house, within his kingdom, within the whole culture, David is seeking the Lord's will. But my understanding of God's judgment against David is that God is withholding his voice and withholding wisdom and withholding discernment from David. So David's not doing anything because he's not hearing from the Lord. And the Lord's not speaking to him because God says, the consequence of your sin, David, is that the sword is never going to depart from your house. And we watch this infighting in his household for the rest of David's life. 
So here Joab is setting up the scene to wake up the king to put him into action. Verse 4 says, the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king. So Joab's able to get her before David as David is now sitting as judge hearing these legal cases. Joab gets her into David's presence. Verse 4, when the, when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, help, O king. Then the king said to her, what troubles you? And she answered, indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant has had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family is risen up against your maidservant. And they said, deliver him who struck his brother, that we, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither, uh, neither name nor remnant on the earth. So here's the presentation. It's biblical. Joab is using a biblical scenario just like Cain and Abel. Here you have two brothers. One brother kills another brother. And what does God do? Did God execute Cain? No. God in his mercy banished Cain. But did God ever stop walking alongside of Cain, seeking to bring about uh, reconciliation and repentance in Cain's life? No. It's the heart of God. Nobody is too far from him. Cain was the one who was continually pushing away God as God was seeking to bring about repentance and reconciliation in Cain's life. So Joab is using that story in this wise woman's mouth because she comes and says, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. I have two sons. One of my sons killed the other son. Murder. So the law says that the man who commits murder ought to die also. You sit in this culture, she's going to bring up the blood avenger. So this could be a family member. It could be a, somebody that's hired to go and execute justice. The case is, I have one son who is dead by murder. I have another son who's going to be dead by capital punishment. If you are not merciful to me, I am going to be without my husband's name is not going to continue on, and a lot of this is social and cultural in the day. So she is crying out to David for his mercy in, his case, in this case. Verse 8, we don't get David's judgment, but he says, Then the king says to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. It's kind of empty, right? You don't know what David's decision is, so she presses him further in verse 9. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. In other words, she's, she's continuing on the, the portrayal in this case that, David, if you feel like withhold, uh, keeping the, the righteous judgment on the son who committed murder, if you feel like giving that judgment is going to make you guilty before God. Let that guilt be on me and my house, and let you and your throne be guiltless is the encouragement. So verse 10 says, so the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. 
And she presses him further. Then she said, please, let the king remember the Lord your God. Remember God. Remember God's righteousness. Remember God's mercy. Remember his kindness. Remember his grace. Remember his judgment. Remember his mercy. Remember the Lord your God. And do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy anymore, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So the mercy that's being sought in this legal fiction, she's finally received the king's judgment, right? And David is now cornered because he just gave judgment in his own case that's going to be brought up. One of the notes, the contrast, is remember David when he's in the midst of his sin and his sin is eating at him and Nathan comes to him and gives him a similar fictional parable. What's David's judgment? The guy who stole a sheep, kill him. You see the transition and how broken David is? Here he is, righteously as king, he could execute judgment in this case and have the son executed because he's a murderer. And capital punishment is legal in this culture. But David has learned mercy. He has been forgiven much, loves much. His heart is being stirred. Joab knows him. He's got the perfect woman to go and present this case, and she has done a fabulous job, and now David is pinned. So, verse 12, Therefore the woman said to him, Please, let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why have you schemed, literally weaved, such a thing against the people of God. For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, right? He, the judgment that he, he, you're guilty of this. And that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away the life, take away a life, but he devises means, he weaves means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. If you mark in your Bible, that is a sense to underline. We'll come back to this and we'll also end on it. God does not take away life, but he is the one who has devised means. In the Old Testament, we look at the sacrificial system and all of its imagery that's pointing to the means of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sending the Son to die for the banished ones so that we as banished ones can be brought back to him and not lose our life. Verse 15, now therefore... I have come to speak of this thing to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant, for the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my lord, the king, will now be comforting for as an angel of God, so is my Lord the King in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. And David saying, wait a minute. 
So again, David, out of his mouth is the judgment. As Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. His life, he will not suffer capital punishment for murder, but we will uh, demonstrate mercy. And because she immediately brings it back to David, David, you are living out your own judgment as one who is guilty because you have not brought back your banished son home. And as David is listening to this, verse 18, the king answers and says to the woman, please don't hide from, uh, from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? You think Joab had any conversations with David about Absalom? I guarantee it. He's knocked on David's heart multiple times. For whatever reason, he sought to have this conversation multiple times. And for whatever reason, David has not felt ready to act. And here, David, as he's sitting in the trap, he realizes and understands Joab's got something to do. The woman answered and said, As you live, my lord, the king, no one can turn to uh, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me and put all these words in, in the mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my lord is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know everything that is in the earth. Verse 21, the king said to Joab, all right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore and bring back the young man, Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bound, bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king. In that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. So here, Parts of this, we have David imaging to us the Lord a little bit in his compassion and in his mercy and his judgment. We also have in this, at the end of this, where David is saying that Absalom is not allowed to see my face. Part of that you feel Genesis 3 and 4, where Adam and Eve were driven out from the presence of God because of their sin, and there was now a separation. Cain, in his murder and his sin, is driven even further out from the land and from the presence of God, and Cain is the one who is hiding his face from God as the murderer because he feels justified in his actions. So part of the undercurrent of what's going on in the relationship between David and Absalom is that Absalom is not repentant. Absalom knows what he did is against the law, so he fled. David, at the same time, is sitting in his own guilt because David knows that his inaction was used as an excuse for Absalom to force Absalom's hand, so to say. Dad's not doing anything, so I guess I'll do it for him. So David's sitting in that guilt too. 
So part of this, why is Absalom being gone for three years? Why is David not bringing Absalom back? Why has Joab not been able to be successful thus far in encouraging David to bring Absalom back? It seems that the major subject matter would be because Absalom's not repentant. Do you want an unrepentant individual who has damaged you, who is not safe, permission back into your life? That's, that's the idea that's going on here. And that's the idea that in being banished from God is our impurity and our unrighteousness has nothing to do with God and his purity and his holiness. To be welcomed back into the presence of God, to be welcomed back into his face, which we are promised through faith in Jesus Christ, there's coming a day when you get to see God face to face. Just as Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. All of that imagery. So, because Absalom is not repentant, yes, he's been brought back into the community, into Jerusalem, into a political station as the, uh, the, the next king apparent should David pass away. But David still has this separation. Now, at... Absalom is coming back, but he can't go into dad's presence and see his face. Uh, what do you think that that is going to do to Absalom and his character and his own heart? He's already an unrepentant man. Dad's not having a conversation with him. King's not having a conversation with him. He seems to be given a lot of free reign to do whatever he wants to do. So there's some easy stones to throw at David and all of David's inactivity. Yet even yesterday in the, in the men's breakfast, we're going, to, going through this fictional book that's you know, fictionalized this story and this relationship um, that you really can see David is just trusting the Lord in regards to Absalom's heart and Absalom's life and to work in him. Absalom knows what he's done is wrong, and he's waiting for that confession and that repentance. But it doesn't happen. Verse 25 says, Now in all Israel there is no one who is praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. Daddy David was a good-looking man. I bet... The princess from Geshur that he married, Bacah, Absalom's mom, is a good-looking woman. They have born a good-looking child, Absalom. So, again, he's got it going on on the exterior. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Jerk. <laughs> I'll keep on moving on. Verse 26. And when he cut the hair of his head, again, I mean, this is why he's a jerk. He's got hair on his head. When he cut the hair of his head, yeah, I've got envy issues. Leave me alone. At the end of every year, he cut it. Can you say, is my head red right now? I can feel the heat. I knew I was naughty, and immediately the blood just goes right here. All right. Woo, it's hot in here. I'm sweating. All right, at the end of every year, pay attention, people. At the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. So two to four pounds is the weight of his hair when he cuts it. Man's got a thick head of hair. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. 
I think that's a pretty awesome side note that he named his daughter after his sister. He wasn't all bad, that's for sure. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Verse 28, Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem. So remember, three years with grandpa is banished in exile. Now he's been two full years in Jerusalem. It says he did not see the king's face. David never sent for him. Absalom never requested to come to dad. They're just standing there in a deadlock. Verse 29, therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. All right, enough is enough. But Joab wouldn't come to him. When he said him again the second time, he wouldn't come. So he said to his servants, see Joab's field, field is uh, near mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set it on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you, saying, Come here, so that I may send, uh, so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, but if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. So again, just paying attention to Absalom's heart. He is unrepentant. He is attempting, he's sick of being there. I, I might as well be back in Geshur with grandpa. Life was better there. I'm pretty much imprisoned here, and I'm not, I don't have the political access that I want to dad. So Joab, I need you to, I'm trying to get you and get your attention to go send a message to dad to tell him how I feel about he's, how he's treating me. There's no repentance in Absalom's heart. But even in David's mercy, David acquiesce to Absalom's demand and allows Absalom into his presence, even though technically in that relationship, Absalom's still a banished one because his heart is not in relationship with or in agreement with or in, re in reconciliation with his dad. There's no conversation about Amnon. There's no conversation about Tamar. There's no, dad, this is why I did what I did. There's no, why didn't you stand up and defend your daughter and my sister? We have none of that conversation. What we have is a man in his flesh having a tantrum and dad allowing it to happen and allowing him to come into his presence. As Absalom bows down before dad in worship, in obedience, in submission, David goes to his son and lifts him up off the ground and gives him this kiss of reconciliation. So David is still extending an olive branch to his son Absalom, giving Absalom the opportunity for conversation. So why David's not initiating it, I don't know. But he's giving Absalom opportunity to initiate the conversation and to demonstrate repentance. But the whole issue and the whole picture of this is just like Cain in Genesis chapter 4, Cain remains an aimless one, a vagabond, a fugitive, a criminal, a man whose sin of murder was God withheld 
judgment and execution. So God was merciful to Cain, but Cain never found his way back into the presence of God because Cain never repented. As we sit with Absalom in this story, he is imaging that exact same heart as Cain. Cain never seeks, or sorry, Absalom here, we don't see any conversation ever between Absalom and God. We watch Absalom remain rooted in his justification for why he did what he did. Tell my dad, if there's any sin in me, let him kill me. Go ahead. See what that gets you. That's his attitude. And David, continuing, continuing in mercy, doesn't execute judgment on his son, but allows him back into his presence, even as an unrepentant son. But the major picture here is Absalom remains banished from the face of God today. This narrative is 3,000 years old. And Absalom died in his sin. Absalom remains a banished one. But this wise woman of Tekoa, what, is God, what has God done? Always, God weaves a way for every single one of us to come back to him. He made a way for Absalom. He made a way for Cain. He made a way for David. He made a way for Saul. He made a way, he made a way for Judas. He made a way for Peter. He's made a way for you, and he's made a way for me. Now, that door is the same for all of us. The gate into the presence of God is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is his blood that was shed for us that covers and atones for our sins. And as we enter in through the door, through the body of Jesus Christ, we now have access to the face of God. We are invited into the throne room of God. We are invited into the holy of holies where the one who is pure, the one who is righteous, the one who is holy, the one who has always been, you no longer have to be a banished one. You are welcomed in. But here's the reality of the human heart. There are many people who live out their lives as Absalom. They think they have been welcomed back into the presence and the face of the king, even though there's never been a true repentance, a true confession, and a true reconciliation. And for me, that's the image that this chapter portrays, is God has made a, a way to bring us as banished ones back into his presence. Don't hold on to the heart of an Absalom. This is why I did what I did. This is why I'm angry. This is why I lust. This is why I'm covered. All of the different lists of sin, all these things that we're told, not to, or that we're told to avoid, all those things we're told to do by the Lord as we follow him, we can come up with all these excuses of this is why I'm not going to do what I'm being told to do and feel like and convince yourself that you're in the presence and seeing the face of God spiritually today and that you'll see his face for all eternity. There's multiple passages that provide us warnings to not allow our hearts to sit in that personal justification, but to make sure that we're sitting in the justification of God through the death of his son on the cross, and that we're living out his life with that image restored. And that comes through confession, 
that comes through repentance, that comes through just simple faith. Lord, I know, I know, apart from the body of Christ, apart from his sacrifice, that I would still be banished from your presence. But I know and I believe and I understand through just that simple act of faith, confession, turning away, walking the path that you were weaving for me as I follow you, that I am no longer defined as an aimless, wandering vagabond who has been banished from your presence, but I'm a child and a son of God that is a co-heir with all, with Christ, of all that God is. Because it's not God's stuff that we want. Yesterday we read a great line, I am not seeking after God's power and God's stuff. I want to seek after God. 